Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. We invite the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you to anoint me this morning to talk about things that are sacred and holy and meaningful to us in our faith. And I pray that we will have eyes to see and ears to hear in Jesus' name. And if you can agree with that, just saints, just say amen. All right, we're going to, because it is Easter season, Passover season, we're going to keep talking about uh, the cross and basically what the cross means to me. <laughs> so I think it's important. You've heard me share this phrase before. Uh, the map is not the territory. The map is not the territory. And that phrase originally comes from a gentleman uh, by the name of Alfred Korzybski, who wrote a book called Science and Sanity. And it is really a thick book. And his whole point is that we don't, we, we live our lives based on the mental and emotional maps that we create or that are created for us. And then we try to navigate our way through life, which is the territory based on the mental and emotional maps that we've been given. The point being, you operate from a map, not from the territory. And it's called science and sanity. And he says to be insane is to confuse the map with the territory. And to be sane or to have sanity is to have a map that accurately represents as close as possible the actual territory. Make sense? Now, when you forget that things are a map, you also forget that there is a map maker. <laughs> Now, the way our mental maps are formed is by giving meaning to our experience. And all of us do this. You can't not do it. You give meaning to the experiences that you have. The fact that you are a Christian and someone else is not means that you give a different meaning to the person of Jesus and death, burial, resurrection, and all of that than someone else. Yes? And you get to choose what meaning you give it. God gives you that freedom, right? So what's happened for us is people have been able, through the centuries, to find multiple meanings in the beauty of the cross. What it means to them. So for example, and we talked about this last week, but I want to do a quick review. For example, in the first, uh, or um, not the first, in, in the first cent- couple centuries, first couple of centuries, the primary thing that you would be facing as a Christian is persecution and potentially death and martyrdom. So it would make sense then that those early Christians found meaning in the cross or meaning in the death of Jesus as a martyr. And they were encouraged to stay faithful in their testimony, just like Jesus stayed faithful in his, and take up their cross and follow him. But what happens then when uh, Christianity becomes the legal uh, sort of religion of the empire? Now you're no longer being persecuted. Now you can live your whole life and not face any kind of persecution. It doesn't make sense to have the same meaning about the cross, does it? So if that was the meaning of the cross, then the cross would lose all meaning if you're not facing martyrdom. So they had to come up with a new meaning. And the meaning that they gave to it was that we were, uh, we still suffer death, we suffer from sin, and we suffer from the powers of darkness, Satan and his minions, right? 
So they, they found meaning in the cross by saying Jesus gave his life as a ransom to set us free from death, sin, the power of the devil. That worked for a long time. Right? That was the meaning that they gave. That was the map that they gave. Until uh, about the 12th century or 10th or 11th century, I can't remember which, but a guy named Anselm of Canterbury comes along. And why does he have to give new meaning to the cross? Because that old meaning is not working anymore. Because people are having questions and issues with it. And he lives in a what's known as a feudal time period where they have an honor code. And different people have different honor. <laughs> and so he has to find and reinterpret the cross in a way that makes sense in his culture. So he interprets it from what's known as the satisfaction theory of atonement, meaning that Jesus satisfied the offended honor of God because of sin and offered new meaning. John Calvin comes along during the Reformation, and according to scholar N.T. Wright, he says one of the primary reasons that penal substitutionary atonement, which is what most churches are founded upon today, and most systems of salvation are founded upon, even if you don't know it, <laughs> uh, was important because they were trying to break away from the, the Roman Catholic Church and they wanted to do away with purgatory. So if God punished Jesus for your sins, then you wouldn't go to purgatory and be punished again because it's a miscarriage of Justice. So he reinterprets the cross and gives new meaning that works in their day and time to thrust them forward out of the what they felt was the corrupt Catholic Church. Right? But do you see it? Now here's the point. If you don't know who the map maker is, if you lose sight of who the map maker is, you forget that it was a human being. And you can think that it's actually the meaning that God is giving to the situation. Because you don't know who made the map. But when you understand, when you look at it historically, which was the purpose of last week's message, so you might want to go listen to it if you haven't, was to show you who the map makers were. So all of us give unique meaning to our experiences. Here we have theologians who gave unique meaning for their time period and what it meant to them. And it caught on in their time period. And because they became influential, because they became important, it got handed down. (laughs) But it's still one person's meaning that they're given (laughs) and a map that they made. It didn't fall out of heaven. All right. So this is my map. Alright, so I'm not pretending to say this is the word of the Lord for all time. This is how it is. I'm just saying in my life, this is how I've been able to find meaning in the cross. And then if it's a map that works for you and you want to adopt it, great. If you don't, perfect. Just remember, it's my map. Got it? It's not God's. It doesn't have to be yours. It's uniquely mine. All right? So let's start with this. Oh, I'm not on. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so let's talk about the word atonement. Um, Because for a lot of people, atonement means this. Let me back up. For a lot of people, atonement means this. 
It means that God was so angry with sin and had to punish humanity because humanity was born wrong and humanity did wrong. And God demands that his justice be satisfied. And the only way apparently it can be satisfied is if somebody is punished for the wrong that they did. So therefore, somebody has to take the punishment (laughs) so that God's not angry anymore so that he can forgive. That's the whole basis of the grace teaching. You take this away, you have to totally rethink your grace theology. Because everybody says, well, the reason we're under grace is because Jesus bore the wrath of God at Calvary for us. All right. Yeah. And and so for them, the word atonement is synonymous with a sacrificial offering in order to appease God's wrath. The two word that the atonement means God's wrath was satisfied through a blood sacrifice. But is that what the actual word in the original languages mean? Let's look at what some scholars say. Let's look at this one. So Mary Douglas, Jewish Old Testament scholar, says this. According to the illustrative cases from Leviticus, in other words, the word atonement comes from the word, from Leviticus and the, the sacrificial offerings of animals, the blood of bulls and goats, right? Uh, to atone means to cover or recover or to cover again, watch this, or to repair a hole or to cure a sickness or to mend a rift or to make good a torn or broken covering. Atonement does not mean covering a sin so as to hide it from God. It means making good an outer layer that has rotted or pierced. Just let let that sink in. All right, let's look at this. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed... Oh, I can't read that. Let me, let me grab my Bible. Uh, which, which version is that? Do you know, James? It's New King James? Sorry, guys. First John 4, what is it? You're all talking at the same time, I can't. Thank you. <laughs> Alright, in this, the love of God was made manifest towards us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the New King James says, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Um, That must be the NIV version because it has in there, God sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the New King James says propitiation. The NIV says an atoning sacrifice. Now, had an interesting experience. When I started, uh, I, I've been preaching this for 10 years at least. Haven't changed really the message in 10 years. But for whatever reason, last summer some other preachers got a hold of it and got really worked up about it. And a few of them cared enough to meet with me and find out what I thought. So I'm having dialogue with this preacher, and 
he keeps telling me, well, then what's the purpose of the cross? Because I'm saying, no, God did not have to kill his son Jesus in order to feel better about forgiving you. (laughs) God did not have to kill his son Jesus in order to satisfy his own demands for justice, in order to forgive you and accept you and not punish you. And so he says, well, then what is the cross about? And I said, one of the things that the cross is about is it is showing us how the love of God operates. And it is teaching us about love. The way that it sets us free is we have very distor- we have a distorted lens about love. We have faulty beliefs and twisted thinking when it comes to relationships and love. And so the cross stands as a, as a radiant light to penetrate the darkness of our hate-filled, envy-filled minds in order to manifest and reveal the love of God to us. And you would have thought that somehow I reduced. He looked at me like, how stupid. And he even said, so that's all it does? That's that's the only thing it does is bring revelation? It was just God showing something? Now, beloved, at the time, I have to be honest, I felt a little bit like (sighs) deflated. Like, well, I guess, you know, I guess it isn't that big of a deal or whatever. But now here's the problem. You cannot find one scripture, and I'll deal with the word propitiation in a second for those that need it. But you cannot find one scripture anywhere in the Bible that says that God had to kill Jesus in order to forgive you. You cannot find one scripture anywhere in the Bible that says that Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God. Not a single verse. But I can show you a passage Where John, who was the closest disciple to Jesus, right? He's the one at the Last Supper when Jesus is getting ready to go through his passion, who is leaning on the Savior's breast. Church has, the church throughout the ages has celebrated John as the one who had his, his, his ear on the heart of God. And so here's the disciple who's leaning on Jesus' breast, who's listening to the heart of God, and he says, this is the meaning of the cross. This is what it's about. Not that you loved God, but that God loved you. And God loved you so much, He sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And, and in this, the love of of God was revealed. And if God so loved us, here's the lesson, then you ought to love one another. But yet you talk to preachers today, and I'm talking about somebody who wrote a book about the cross. Published it. Probably why he got so lathered up, because maybe he thought I was going to take dollars from his pockets. No, I don't think that was it. I think he was sincere. But I'm just saying, someone who had thoroughly studied it, and when I said what the Bible says, what John the Apostle said, that the cross is a manifestation of the love of God for us, is that all? Is that all it means to you? And then cursed me as a heretic and wrote all over my Facebook page that I don't believe in the blood. And I just put underneath that, what you just wrote is a lie. Then he unfriended me and then six hours later tried to friend me again. <clears throat> I declined. <laughs> okay, so they say, no, 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 propitiation. Everybody say propitiation. Does anybody in here that hasn't studied theology, doctrine, or heard me teach this have any clue what the word propitiation means? Because it's not a word that we use. 
It is an old English word that got imported from the King James Version of the Bible. And it does in fact mean to propitiate, means to satisfy wrath or to become the object of wrath or to become one who turns away wrath. So I can't, we, we can't blame people for thinking that take the time to find out what the word propitiation means. That it means that Jesus somehow turned away the wrath of God. But here's our problem. That's not exactly the word that's used in the Greek. And your modern translators know this. Which is why your NIV, your New Living Testament, the Net Bible, some of these newer translations, none of them use the word propitiation. Not just because it's not a word that we don't use anymore, but because it was a faulty translation in the 16th century by King James translators who did not have access to as many texts or as much knowledge as we have today. It's amazing to me that we would expect progress in every area of science. You don't go to a doctor, I've said this before, but you don't go to a doctor and let them practice medicine that they were practicing 100 years or 200 years ago on your kid. Do you, Steve? George Washington had strep throat, so they had a brilliant idea. Let's bleed him. Let's cut him open with his veins and let all the good white blood cells out that fight infection. Josiah was confirmed as having strep throat yesterday. Thank God. You know, we, we didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. The medicine they used in 1611 is so much better. <laughs> so why don't we allow for progress in translations when they've discovered new scrolls, new manuscripts, more information? I mean, my God, we expect progress in every area of our life except when it comes to our own soul. We demand progress. If they, if we'd have taken him to the ER and they said, okay, we're going to open up his vein. I said, no, 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 no. We demand that you use modern antibiotics. The word there actually, the literal translation is the mercy seat. Everybody just say with me, the mercy seat. Now, for those of you who don't know what the mercy seat is, when the Jews were wandering through the wilderness. God gave them a tent, a tabernacle to set up where his tangible, literal presence would abide in a place called the Holy of Holies over a piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the place that they called the mercy seat. That's it. Jesus is the mercy seat for our sins. The reason it gets interpreted propitiation is because the translators apparently took the liberty of assuming that the atonement meant to satisfy the wrath of God and that was done through the shedding of blood and the blood was applied to the mercy seat. So therefore, it must mean propitiation. Even though in the texts in Leviticus, it never says that God's wrath was turned. It says that Israel's sin was cleansed. It never says God got so angry at that goat. Boy, he just somehow, that blood of that goat just made him feel better. So I stand by what I said. There's not one single verse anywhere in the Bible that teaches... That God was punishing, God the Father was punishing His own Son in your stead 
on the cross. You can't find it. But you can find (laughs) that it was a demonstration of the love of God that was there to teach us how to love one another. Now, same book, same author. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. (laughs) Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So I want to deal with this for a second, because I think Cain is an interesting to talk about right here. So in other words, what he's saying is, if you are going to love one another, you cannot be like Cain. (laughs) Compare and contrast, right? Black and white, right? See it? Now, why Cain is so interesting here is because I was taught, now I don't know that that I follow this. I don't know who the map maker was. But I was taught one of the principles of Bible interpretation was called the law of first mention. The first time you see a topic brought up in scripture, there is something that is revealed that's very important to that theme throughout the rest of the Bible. So the first time a son is mentioned, for God so loved the world (laughs) that he gave his only begotten son, who was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the first time you find the word son, the first time you find out about a lamb, and the first time you find out about sin is all in the same story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. So it makes sense then, based on the law of first mention at least, that we need to find something in the story of Cain and Abel if we're going to understand the story of Jesus. Doesn't that make sense? What's the story of Cain and Abel? So most people think, here's what most people think. Cain brought a blood sacrifice, or I'm sorry, not Cain, wrong guy. Abel brought a blood sacrifice, because God has a, a blood lust, I guess. Abel brought a blood sacrifice, and Cain brought a fruit sacrifice, so he didn't have any blood. So therefore, God rejected Cain's offering, and Accepted Abel's offering. Anybody ever heard something like that? Problem is, blood's not mentioned in the text. Let's just get that out of the way. But the issue, if you read the story closely, we miss what's most important. It says he looked, it says the Lord saw Cain and his offering. And he said, why has your face fallen? If you do not do well, won't you be accepted? He didn't say, if you offer me a lamb, won't you be accepted? Because you got to understand, in Israel, you could bring a fruit offering to the Lord. First fruit offering was the Lord's. It didn't have to be blood. The issue wasn't so much his offering as it was what was within the man himself. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord does what? looks on the heart. So he looks at Cain before he looks at his offering and he looks at Cain and he sees something in Cain that isn't right and he says, why is your face fallen? 
And so what does Cain go out and do? Does he negotiate? Let's say it was a lamb. For the sake of argument, let's say he had to bring a blood sacrifice. Don't you think if Abel was righteous, Cain could have negotiated, hey, I'll trade you some carrots and beets and tomatoes for one of your lambs? But what did he do? He went out and killed Abel, right? He went out and killed him. And then what did he do? He hid it. Now here's a really important point. The first society in the Bible and the first city that was built in the Bible was built by Cain. He was the founder of the first society and of the first city. And he founded his society and his city on the bloodshed of another that he tried to hide and cover up. We'll come back to that. Let's go to the next. Cain founded the first city, and since then, every civilization and kingdom has been founded upon bloodshed that we try to hide and deny and pretend didn't happen. Native Americans, African Americans, Chinese Americans. <coughs> Moving right along. What's the cause of all this? First John 4, 1 through 2. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Watch this. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Where do wars outwardly come from? It comes from your desires and lusts and covetousness for things. Right? Bear with me one more verse here. Luke 12, 15, and he said to them, Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Everybody say covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Right? Now, that, this brings me to another map maker by the name of Rene Girard. Because Rene Girard presented a different theory of the atonement than what we've talked about. And yet I think it's deeply founded in Scripture. Now, who was René Girard? René Girard was not a theologian. He was not a Bible scholar. He was an anthropologist, a world-renowned anthropologist. Anthropology is the study of anthropos humans or human societies down through the ages. What in the world do you suppose anthropology has to do with the death of Jesus? Well, let's, let's back up. Cain founded the first city, and since then, every civilization and kingdom has been founded upon bloodshed. Now, here's his theory. Let me come back to René Girard. You'll notice I put under on that slide, scapegoats. What's a scapegoat? Yeah, in the Bible, it's the goat that goes out in the wilderness. Let me tell you how René Girard understood scapegoating. 
And you'll see it. I think you'll see it. He studied societies and cultures down through the ages around the world, and he discovered that blood sacrifice was, or some sort of violence in every ancient society was ritualized, was sanctified by ritual. That there was shedding of blood in every culture that was sanctified by ritual. And here's the theory that he postulated. He came up with a theory of what he called mimetic, everybody just say this with me, mimetic desire, mimetic. Mimetic desire comes from the word mime or mimic. And here's what he says. He looked at two children. So, so for example, if you, if you apply Rene Girard, he didn't necessarily, but if you apply Rene Girard's theory, you look at two children, they can have, my boys can be playing with Legos. Tons of Lego bricks. Josiah will have two Lego bricks that he's playing with, or Elijah will have two Lego bricks that he's playing with, and what does Josiah do? What does the other brother do? Comes along and what? Wants what he has, right? And what does he say? Mine. Even though there's hundreds of bricks for me to step on in the middle of the night and experience excruciating pain that are exactly the same. But what do they do? They fight over what the other one has. And so this is what Rene Girard observed, that it is a human tendency to want what someone else has and to fight over it based on that desire. And he says, when you get a bunch of people together, you get a bunch of people competing over the same things. You have the haves and the have-nots. And you have all this covetous desire being acted out. And what it does is it creates an aggression. It creates a need for violence. So to stabilize the culture, they would ritualize violence so that the community could get it out of their system And they could come back into some kind of balance. And it had to be a ritual that was repeated because the mimetic desire would not go away and they would start competing again. So in other words, when someone else has something that you want and you think you don't have it, you think you have to have what they want (laughs) and you don't have it and and you're one of the have-nots. And and it doesn't work, by the way, because the haves are not any happier than the have-nots. In some cases, the have-nots are happier than the haves. How do I know? Because I've been to Africa and watched children who had nothing, who lived in streets covered with trash, who had homes and houses that I am not meaning this to be ugly in any way, shape, or form. I'm just telling you our animals on the farm when I was growing up had better accommodations than some of the families of what I've seen over there. And I could see their children with a stick and a rock happier Then my children with their tablets and video games and... I'm just saying, the haves want to get more, which is exactly why capitalism might be a great theory, but it doesn't work in practice. Because, you know, these companies don't profit share with the people who are really down in the trenches making money. They know they'll fire you without a thought because they need to increase their stock value and they'll give multi-million dollar golden parachutes 
to the CEOs. Because it's just that desire to always have more. Do you see what I'm saying? And so what happens is, is, is it builds up this thing. And so they would create this event. And the scapegoat was the recipient of the violence. So in the Israel uh, ritual, it wasn't enough for the high priest to have one goat that he went and shed blood because he was doing that behind a veil and nobody was seeing it. So we had to have a live goat that they took through the city that people threw rocks at and scoffed and were violent towards while he was marching it out in the wilderness to take the sin of Israel and remove it. And so, based on Rene Girard, but also based on the Bible, James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come, conflicts come from among you? From your desire to have. You covet and you do not have. You want what somebody else has and you can't get it, so you get all violent. So, so the basis for societies, why did Europeans, what happened when the Europeans showed up in the new world? Saw all this gold, all this treasure, and they had no weapons. They had superior might, superior power, so what did they do? They took manifest destiny, what? We have to conquer the whole continent. So here's a disease that we're immune to. Let's infect it and infect the whole tribe and wipe them out. So we can have their land, we can have their gold, we can have their cattle, we can have their possessions. And then let's bury it and pretend we didn't do it. Because we have a righteous cause. We have a manifest destiny. North and South, why did they go to war? Thank you. It was an economic issue. Right? Bloodshed. Oppression. Slavery. So the Bible actually gives us a picture that this is how cultures operate. This is how societies operate and function. So we see in Scripture actually that Jesus plays the role of the scapegoat. Look at this. But Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy but the chief priest stirred up the crowd that he should rather release Barabbas men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth that man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and have put to death
I meant to put this verse in there. Maybe it's, it's in there later on. I kind of lost my place with it. So, But you remember that there was, during the festival, okay, look at me. We're done with Acts for, for the time being. The chief priest says, brethren, if this man is allowed to continue, he will stir up the Romans and they will come and destroy us. Is it not better for one man to perish than the whole nation? Isn't it better for one man to perish that the whole nation might be saved? And it actually says in the scripture, this he spoke by the Spirit because he was prophesying, but he didn't know it. You remember that? And we think it's prophesying God's purpose and plan. The the reality, the way I see it is, Jesus had become the scapegoat. Here's how scapegoating works. Scapegoating can work in a family. Some people... In their, within their family system, for whatever reason, become the scapegoat in the family. This is the person here. What is a scapegoat? If you, if this person, fill in the blank, if this person would just do right, everything would be okay. And it works on multiple levels. It can work on a family. He was the black sheep of the family. He was always causing us trouble. The, the person who feels responsible for every... The person who's constantly shamed in the family. See, we don't do bloodshed today, but we do shame. We get it out with our words. We get it out with our hatefulness. We get it out with our... Or we can go so long in peace and then we have to find a new enemy. In the 80s, it was the Russians. Now it's the Muslims. Who knows who's next? Maybe it's the aliens. I mean, the real kind that come from outer space. Be nice if we could find somebody who's not part of the human race to scapegoat, right? Watch it play out in our society. Watch it play out in our culture. Watch it in the mouth of Christians. 9-11 9-11 happened. Prominent Christian leader stood up and said, God has lifted his hand of protection. Why? Who got the blame? Homosexuals and abortionists. Thank you. Now, I'm just inviting you to see the scapegoat mechanism. How come it wasn't the gospers sitting in church? How come it wasn't the gluttons? Uh, Golden Corral. How come it wasn't the greedy corporations? I'm mentioning the seven deadly sins. How come it was that one specific group or this other specific group over here? And if they would just stop, then God would put his hand of protection back on the nation. You're scapegoating and you don't even know it. You're being like Cain and you don't even recognize it. Because you haven't been taught to. It's, and it's human nature. Let's see, who else needs to act right and do right and be right? And if we could just get them to act right and do right and be right, everything would be okay. And we never scapegoat people like us. We scapegoat people with different skin color. We scapegoat, scapegoat people with different uh, lifestyle behaviors. We scapegoat people who believe differently than us. It's that liberal, it's all those liberal Christians. Because God said, if my people who are, this is a promise made to Israel about the promised land. You have no right, biblically, no right, none, 
If you want to, good. God bless you, fine. If you want to pray, fine. But I just want you to know, you are biblically illegal. (laughs) To take a sign from 2 Chronicles, whatever verse that is. You see the signs in it. And it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. He's talking about the promised land. He's talking about Israel. He's not talking about America. And he's not talking about Baptists or Pentecostals or Church of Christ or us. It just gives us another reason to point the bony finger at people who aren't praying and aren't living right and aren't doing right and you're the reason and it's God's people if God's people just live right if they just come to more prayer meetings if they just humble themselves and repent and cry and repent over God knows what then God will turn His wrath away from this nation. My God, your mercy is greater than God's? God wants to destroy it, but He's looking and they're to and fro. Oh, but I can't find an intercessor to stand in the gap and say, Oh no, God, please mercy. Please mercy, God. Turn away your judgment, God. Turn away your judgment. Have mercy, O Lord. What? Why does God need you shouting in His face to have mercy? Is your mercy greater than His? Is He so petty that He's like, if somebody doesn't stand up for Him, man, I'm going to get Him. (laughs) Well, God doesn't actually get Him. He just removes His hedge of protection. Yeah, okay, fine. All right, fine. I'm going to take my kids to the middle of Nairobi where even the Kenyans are afraid to go. And I'm going to walk him down the street, then I'm just going to remove my protection. And then when they get snatched, or, or take them someplace, and they get snatched and killed, or taken into the sex trade, I can say, oh, well, that was the sex traders, it wasn't me, I love them, I love them, but they gave me no choice but to remove my hand of protection. Blink, 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 blink. I mean, this is the stuff we say about God, who's good all the time. And all the time, He's good, unless, you know, there's not an intercessor. There's not somebody pleading for mercy. Then, you know, He won't actually hurt you. He'll just hand you over. Might as well just take my child and hand him over to an abductor and say, well, there you go, you know, he was naughty. Causing too much trouble in the family. Not following the family rules. My God, you'd put that person in prison and rightfully so. The sad thing is, and you try to point these things out to people and they say, Oh, brother, God's ways are just higher than our ways. (laughs) I brought up on the internet, you know, how do we deal with the fact that God ordered genocides? in the Old Testament. And people start trying to justify it because they'd rather have a flawed God than a flawed book. They'd rather say every word is inspired by God and make God out to be this evil nationalist 
who endorses genocide in the Bible, then say, oh, maybe we need to look at the story again because our God isn't like that. So they hold the Bible up ahead of God. And they always come back with the same trite answer. Well, you just don't understand God's ways. Well, you just don't understand His justice. I'm like, we're talking about genocide, people. We're talking about killing men, women, children, babies, animals. All y'all that get upset about whatever's going on in the animal shelters. I had a friend private message me. He said, he said, you know, anytime you're on the side of genocide, you're on the wrong side. Like, you can't even be more wrong. And they said this cracked me up. He said, the flat earthers are less wrong than you are. <laughs> like, why can't we just say the things we put off on God are our projections of our own stuff because we really don't know and we really don't understand and we don't know why bad things happen to good people and we don't know why life sucks and sometimes it seems random and we don't know why this one didn't get cancer but this one over here got cancer but we have to come up with something so we put these dumb things on God that frankly if God was guilty of we'd arrest a human being and we'd throw him into prison but instead of putting God in prison what we do is we put people in prison with the image and the idolatry and the, and, the, and the phony BS that we put off on God. Because we don't know how to deal with our own mimetic desires and we don't know how to deal with our own conflicts and we don't know how to find meaning in our own life and we don't know how to live together in love for one another and we have elevated your belief in the truth over whether or not we're going to love you. We'll love you as long as you agree with us but if you don't agree with us, now you're the scapegoat. You're the reason the church isn't succeeding. You're the reason people are going to hell. You're the reason that people are being deceived. You're the reason that people are falling away. Really? Yeah, because you don't agree with me. And it's my job to set you straight and protect the body of Christ. And we have these things ruling in our heart and we act like Cain and we don't realize it and we're in the bondage to the evil one and we don't realize it because we haven't looked at what Jesus did on the cross. The foundation of the kingdom of God is God's society is founded upon the sacrificial death of its founder. He reverses the story of Cain and Abel. Because what the God that's revealed in Christ, hear me saints, the God that's revealed in Christ is not like the God of the Old Covenant. God is correcting where we got it wrong. See, I love the Bible because it's divine, but I love the Bible because it's also human. I made this statement, another statement, I get people worked up all the time. Huh? Of the three Abrahamic religions, listen to me, of the three Abrahamic religions, what are they? Judaism, Islam, Christianity, only the people who put the Christian scriptures together did not claim for itself direct divine revelation. 
We inherited the Old Testament, which Moses received by the finger of God on Mount Sinai. It was a direct dictation. Muhammad was dictated, reportedly, the Koran from the angel Gabriel. With the exception of the book of Revelation, there is no claim of direct divine contact or dictation of any of the writings of the New Testament. Paul says, see this letter which I have written in my own hand. John says, I have seen these things and I testify to them that are true and I write that you might believe. And the only time someone's taken up into heaven and told to write things is in the book of Revelation. And it was the last book to be canonized. It was the most controversial book to be canonized. And the same people that gave you your canon of scripture said, you can use that book in worship, but you cannot use it for doctrine or teaching. Only one of the three religions that says our book is human. And we're not going to force you to accept it as the divine word of God. And you know what? I think that actually gives it more credibility, not less credibility. And I love the humanity of the book. I love that we can see the projections that we put on God. That we commit our own violence in the name of God and say God told us to do that. That just like Adam blamed God for their situation, for his situation, God, it was the woman that you gave to be with me that caused me to have to leave the garden. And you don't understand that in Israel's story, the garden is a type of the promised land. And so they can say it was God that caused the armies to come in and destroy them and scatter them. But it's just the projections of the fallen mind of Adam. Which is why Christ had to come. You know, one of the most powerful books in the Bible is the book of Job. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible. You know why Job is so powerful? Because terrible things, bad things happen to a good person. And you know what he does? He starts wrestling with, why did this happen? And what are the answers that he gets? You must have done something wrong, Job. Throughout the book, God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. So Israel comes along later and they write this in Deuteronomy. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God and you do what is right in His sight and you keep ear to, give ear to His commandments, then these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be your basket and your storehouse. Blessed will be the fruit of your ground. Blessed will be the flocks of your increase. Blessed you, you'll be made plenteous in silver and gold and with long life He will satisfy you and show you His salvation. But if you disobey the voice of the Lord your God, and you don't give ear to His commandments, and you do what is evil in His sight, then all these curses will come upon you. Cursed will you be in the field, and cursed will you be in the house. And So if you obey the commandments, blessing. If you disobey the commandments, 
And one of the things he says, if you obey the commandments, God will send the blessing of heaven upon your land, the rain, so that your crops will do well. And if you disobey, he'll make the heavens like iron above you, or bronze above you, heavens like bronze, and the earth like iron, so that the earth will not give forth its crops. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and you know what he says? If you want to be like your Father who is in heaven, he says, be indiscriminate in your love, because your Father causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, and he gives rain upon those who do good, and he gives rain upon those who do evil. And what we miss the whole time is that Jesus is directly contradicting the Scriptures that Moses supposedly received by the finger of God. So here you have Jesus who never did anything to harm anyone. Peter, when he's, when he's talking to that generation, he says, you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And then later on he goes, but you by wicked hands and lawless hands have taken and crucified the Prince of Life. So here's a man that fully pleased God. Here's a man who did everything right that became a scapegoat for the nation. And here's a man that we claim was God manifested in the flesh, who stood before Pilate and said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. Who told another, could I not call 12,000 legions of angels and have them fight on my behalf? And so Jesus reveals Job gets to the end of the book and basically God outframes the question. He never does answer why it happened. And when Jesus was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no record of an answer. Because I believe with all my heart what Jesus, one of the things the cross reveals to us is God is not this Monster. Okay, I'm saying this for shock value. He's not a tyrannical dictator and he's not a John. He's not the tyrannical dictator that says, Obey me or else I'm going to use my power and and torture you for all eternity in flames and fire. Love me or else... I'm going to get you. Obey me or else my wrath is going to come down. Isn't that a little covetous of God? Isn't that a little too human? Like, Aaron, if, if you're saying not everything in the Old Testament is, is this is how God really is, then how do you know the difference? Well, is it, if it's too human, it's probably not God. If he's on a throne needing to be complimented in order to feel better about his day... Oh, I just inhabit the praises of my people. That's probably just a little too human. If he's angry because you didn't do exactly what he wanted, that's probably a little too human. If he's causing warfare and genocide and murder and death, that's probably a little too human. But Jesus comes and says, I'm going to found a society not by conquering and bloodshed. I'm going to found a society upon my own blood. I'm going to found it on my, I would rather die than punish you 
for not obeying. And notice Jesus didn't have any mimetic desires. He wasn't. How could they do this to me after all I did? Notice he took his disciples in the garden. He said, I need to go pray for a while. Father, if this be your will, thy will be done. He didn't say, can you believe how unfair this is? Can you believe that, can you believe that Judas? I knew he was a no good traitor. Well, I meant to tell you this, Jesus, but you know, he's been dipping in the till for a while. That's the kind of conversation we would have. But he's saying God's not like that. So he's not this tyrannical dictator that says, obey me or else. But he's also not a John who says, I'll reward you and pay you with silver and gold and financial blessing and gain if, you, if you're intimate with me. And so it has the power to remove every false belief system that we have built up about God and it's so contrary to the human way it's so contrary to our way it's so contrary to the way of Cain that it stands in stark contrast and God invites us as Christians as followers of Jesus to learn those ways he becomes if you will the forgiving victim the forgiving scapegoat. He shows us the evil of our own societies that are founded upon bloodshed that we try to hide out of our own desire for gain and to possess that which is someone else's. And says, I will find a new society. And so we have so corrupted the scriptures. And this is one of the reasons the church said, don't teach from the book of Revelation. Could you imagine if, if we would have understood that the, the people who said the revelation belongs in the canon of Scripture, but you can't teach it as doctrine, you know how much money you'd have saved on Bible prophecy books? I wouldn't have been so dumb scared from those dumb movies in the 70s, A Thief in the Night, when everybody disappeared. And I come home, mom's late, and it's before cell phones, and she's not there, and nobody's there, and I'm like, oh my God, I got left behind. <laughs> Sheer terror and trauma at eight years old. I'd have been saved all that. But here's one of the problems. We have this we have this bloody Armageddon. With some world ruling Antichrist that isn't even mentioned. The word Antichrist. John the Apostle is the only one that uses the term Antichrist and he never uses it in the book of Revelation. That's a shock to somebody. We have this idea that Jesus comes and destroys in bloody warfare the enemies and it goes totally contrary to the teaching of Jesus and you don't even read the text. Because you don't understand that warfare, you know, they didn't, they didn't have scud missiles. I'm almost done, but please bear with me. They didn't have scud missiles. Warfare, they didn't have rifles. Warfare was personal. The Roman swords, the reason the Romans were so deadly was because their swords were shorter and lighter. So they could move faster and cut deeper than these barbarian swords that were like this. So it was very up close and personal. So if you went to war, you got blood on you. Anybody ever see Braveheart? So here come the armies of heaven. What you think is the second coming in Revelation 20, but it's not. It's a revelation. 
It's not the second coming. It's a revelation of what the army of God is like. And it says that Jesus comes out, his eyes like fire, and a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And it says his robe is dipped in blood. And the armies that follow behind him are dressed in pure white linen. And the church has made us so sin conscious that we think white must represent purity. And it's just talking about those saints who were righteous because of what Jesus did. No. It's saying they were white because they did not have a drop of blood. In other words, he's saying this army does not win through force and power. This army does not win through bloodshed. The only bloodshed in this kingdom and for this army is the one who goes out before us. And it's not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood. And the sword that comes out of his mouth isn't there to destroy. Because what good is a sword going to do against scud missiles and tanks? I mean, come on, guys. It's no better than having fire-breathing prophets. You seen those movies? The fire-breathing prophets? (laughs) So dumb. (laughs) The sword is the word of God. In other words, we win by our words. We win by our ideas. We win by the ability of persuasion and not coercion and not force and not bloodshed. So what do I do with my own heart (laughs) that wants what someone else has, that gets frustrated and impatient when I can't get it, that demands some kind of violence or bloodshed that somehow put me back in my right mind? (sighs) I can look at the beauty of the cross. And I can understand that God buried a treasure inside of me and inside of you before you were ever born. He put Christ in you. And when you see the Christ, if you can get through all the junk, all the religious theological junk that we've been told about God, there is something so powerful that it can touch Jesus Christ who's in you. And roll away the stone of your own heart so that that which seemed to be dead and powerless inside of you can have a resurrection. And somehow maybe we can learn to love one another the way that he's loved us. That we can learn the beauty of suffering a wrong rather than retaliating. What happened if we just practiced that? What if you just went out this week and you said, every time I feel wronged, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to explain. 
I'm not going to attack. I'm not going to point the finger. I'm just going to take a deep breath and take it to the cross. Frankly. What would happen? Yeah, that person at work stole my idea and told the boss it was his and now he's getting the promotion and not me and I hate him. Or her, whatever. What if, what if we just said, you know what, it happened, I'm going to bless that person. That would start a revolution. Let's stand up. I know there's probably some of you in here today that you played the role of the scapegoat too many times. Maybe you were the scapegoat in your family. Maybe you were the one that always got blamed for stuff. Maybe you somehow played the role of the scapegoat on your job. Or maybe you're part of a larger culture and group of people that in some way in your history as a people have played the scapegoat in our nation. I believe the Lord wants to release a special grace and a special mercy over you. And I think that would be a wonderful thing for those of us who maybe never had to play that role, those of us who had more privilege, might be able to co-suffer with someone who didn't have it as well. So would you open your hearts with me and would you just lift your voice for a moment, just right there where you are, however this message has touched you, however this has impacted you. Would you, in your heart or verbally, would you just open your heart right now to the Lord and would you just make your own prayer, just let your own prayer go up before our Father. Holy Spirit, come. We love you. We worship you. We magnify you. We bless your name. Maybe you've found yourself in the way of Cain, angry. Maybe you don't identify with the victim as much as the villain. (laughs) Because you know in your own heart that you've retaliated spoken evil lost your temper when you know said things when you lost your temper that you wish you could take back open your heart before the Lord we all do it gang we all want to pretend we don't but we all do (laughs) I do it weekly if not daily you can't live under condemnation from it you can't doesn't help then you just victimize yourself then you make yourself the villain and the victim (laughs) father in Jesus name we just pray for one another right now we pray for ourselves for our own hearts our own hurts our own misgivings, 
our own sense of powerlessness at times when we felt like the victim, our own frustration when injustices have been perpetrated against us. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for our brothers and sisters in this room. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray. You know what? If, if you're conservative, it'd do you a, a great service to pray for liberals right now. And if you're liberal, it'd do you a great service to pray for conservatives. Or you could just opt out like me. <laughs> both, both sides are confused. <laughs> I've been a lot happier since I opted out, by the way. Just saying. Let me tell you something. It's not your job to change the world. The world was messed up when you got here, and it'll be messed up when you leave. And you, and you won't make a lick of difference. Okay. <laughs> That's motivational, isn't it? <laughs> but it's freeing. Actually, the Lord told me that. He said, Aaron, you weren't here to change the world. You weren't here to save anybody. The world was messed up before you got here, and it's going to be messed up when you leave. And it was one of the most freeing things I ever heard. (laughs) All right, Lord. Come on, just receive right now some grace. Receive some healing. Receive some transforming grace. Receive some peace. In the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. Lord, we love you. We love your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming out and listening to me. God bless you. I hope you were blessed.